0: Are you ready for good talk? And hello there. It's Friday. That means good talk. Bruce away this week. Chantel, though is here. She joins us from Montreal as usual. And joining us from Ottawa on this day is Rob Russo, uh, former bureau chief for well Canadian Press in Washington. In an Ottawa, former bureau chief for the CBC. In Ottawa, he's now kind of playing the semi-retired act. Well, he sorts out what may be next, but he's still plugged in and he's still watching things uh, in the nation's capital and beyond. So uh, welcome to the program, Rob. And let's let's get started. I'm going to work kind of backwards in terms of things that happened this week because it was an interesting week. And there were three topics that I f- find uh, that I'd like to expand on a little bit. So the most recent one actually deals with an old story, the 2016 visit by Justin Trudeau to the Augur Khan's Caribbean island. And it was a big deal at the time, Uh, a bit of a mini scandal, if you wish, because it cost a lot of money, all of which the tab was picked up by the Augur Khan. The uh, ethics commissioner looked at this and decided this was a breach of the ethics guidelines. And uh, the Prime Minister was uh, at least tapped on the wrist. The opposition made some hay out of it at the time. And then it kind of disappeared, although it's always lingered on as one of those kind of mini scandals that uh, has impacted the Prime Minister's reputation. Well, this week, the story comes back. And basically, the story this week is that the RCMP, at some point during this process, had had investigated what happened and thought there might be a case of fraud, but they decided not to charge the prime minister with fraud. Now, it's not the first time the RCMP investigates someone, thinks they might have a case against them, and then decides not to pursue it because they don't have the evidence or they don't think they can get a conviction. That's one part of the story. But the part that intrigues me is the way the story came out this week. And you tell me. I mean, I'm not naive. I understand how things work in Ottawa in terms of the circulation of information. But the story was actually discovered, this RCMP angle, apparently by the Conservatives. But they decided not to announce it or question it or make a big deal of it in the House of Commons initially. They instead flipped it to the Globe and Mail and the Globe and Mail did a story. They included the fact that the Conservatives had given it to them. And then the Conservatives, after it had been in the globe, then they went on the prowl in question period. So my question really is about the process as opposed to the auga-con. It's about, is this the way things work? Is this the way things should work? In terms of how stories are developed, where the opposition party doesn't do it themselves, but sort of gives it to the media to do it, at least the initial go round on it. What do you make of this, Chantal?
1: Uh, That there is nothing new under the sun, Uh, that uh, this... uh, strategy of trying to sell a, a mainstream media that has influence on a story before it's developed in question period has been used by just about every opposition party that I've covered over the decades. And why do they do this? Because when it is um, laundered uh, through the process of legitimate news, which it is, by the way, uh, the impact is bound to be more important than if it just comes out in the lobby of the House of Commons uh, and is carried with partisan intent, obviously, uh, for by one party or another. So, So I don't find the process surprising. I think at the end of the day, the, the the value of the story, whether it's presented by the official opposition on the floor in question period or whether it is in, in the Globe and Mail or the Toronto Star, the, the news value and the spin on it uh, that uh, the opposition parties would like to put on it uh, will still be evaluated for what it's worth. Uh, and not necessarily because it's in the newspaper, so it's a big story, so you should worry about it. I was uh, interested this week to see that, yes, uh, a lot of people read it with interest. Yes, the Conservatives spent uh, the week on it, but um, it didn't become the kind of story that everyone jumps on and wants to match. Uh, And one of the reasons for that is that when when you look at the story, and You see that the RCMP expected these discussions to come to light one day. Uh, and, and I believe that in every high-profile case, there will be a conversation where someone says, what if we do this? What will the outcome be? Some of those conversations in the past might have um, been worth uh, stretching on a bit longer. I'm thinking about the, the RCMP investigation and the leak that the uh, they were investigating insider trading in the Minister of Finance, Ralph Goodale, in the middle of an election campaign. Possibly that's a conversation that might have gone on for longer. Uh, or I'm thinking about the, the uh, abject failure of the RCMP to make the charges, the many ones, uh, that it, uh, it, it put on Mike Duffy, Senator Mike Duffy, and the spending scandal uh, that were all thrown out in court. So, so those conversations and those decisions are also uh, quite common. Uh, but the fact that the RCMP had that decision reviewed by two independent bodies before uh, it became final and it came out also suggests, as most of those who read the story, that. Uh, this isn't uh, the RCMP fishing for more evidence against the prime minister. This is a closed file that was reviewed and considered rightly closed.
0: And in fact, they said yesterday that uh, the file was closed and they weren't pursuing it any further. Um, but uh, once again, I would, uh, you know, and I get Rob now on, on his thoughts on it. My, my question is about the process. And whether, you know, the, the, the media gets used in a situation like this. I agree with Chantel. It's not the first time it's happened. As I said earlier, I'm not naive. I understand the process. But I'm just wondering, is this a good thing for the system to have a process like this, Rob?
2: Well, I mean, all of us work for serious news organizations, and there's a process. There There is a process, that kind of a checklist that any responsible journalism organization We'll look at when they're evaluating this kind of a thing. First of all, is it an anonymous? Uh, is it a brown envelope kind of thing? If it is, uh, then what is the motivation? I mean, what is the motivation of people purveying this kind of information? Um, you have to determine that. Uh, news value is, is, is uh, you know, primordial. You have to decide whether or not this meets the standard of news. Often in these kinds of discussions, it's, we have, it begins with a, an opposition party or a political party saying, we have this information, we are prepared to give it to you under the following conditions. Sometimes they set conditions. Uh, uh, and and those conditions can be anything from, I'll give you an example, uh, uh, a political party came to me and said, you cannot go to the opposition for reaction on this story. We want a clean shot at it uh, and, and uh, you know, under under almost any circumstances i just cannot i cannot I, uh, I cannot see a serious news organization agreeing to any conditions so there there is all these checklists that you have to go through to determine motivation to determine news value to determine whether or not uh, it's a smear to, to 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 decide whether it's in the interest of the public to actually see this uh, particularly if there are any conditions uh, applied applied to the quid pro quo. And there's always a quid pro quo. In this instance, this was not anonymous. This was a cons- conservative party saying, okay, go ahead and, and use uh, us as, as the source of the information. It was based on a document. It wasn't based on anybody's uh, necessarily uh, interpretation of the document. It looks like, uh, looks like the globe was free uh, to, to interpret it the way they want. Sometimes uh, you know, we've both been involved, Peter, in situations where, where people will say to us, "Where is it going to be in the lineup?" Because we wanted number one in the lineup uh, <laughs> sometimes, right? And you can't, you can't make that kind of a deal either, right? So, uh, in this instance, you, you could, you could imagine the conservatives would say, "We want it at the top of the page uh, or the web page, uh, which is where it ended up." But also, in this instance, I do believe it met the threshold of national news. I would have displayed it prominently as well. Uh, I, I, I do believe that that the RCMP considering investigating the prime minister met that threshold. I do believe that the conservative party being identified as the, as the, the purveying source of the information was prominently displayed as well. Uh, so I don't know that I'd have very many qualms unless of course there was any kind of quid pro quo. And, and, and we don't know that, but even if there was, I would have put the story pretty much where it is. I, I do think that there is an element of this story that merits further um, uh, further work by journalists and by the government, quite frankly. And that is the reason why the, the RCMP opted not to pursue the charge. And that is because there's a provision of the act uh, that allows the prime minister some leeway in determining whether or not he can give himself a loophole, uh, whether or not he thought, he thought it was okay to accept this gift. And I think that that merits a review by, by government lawyers and by uh, ethics people in government who keep a check on, on government officials. Uh, so I, I do believe that, that it's worth some of the follow-up uh, examination that the Globe is doing.
1: I, I, on that point, I would uh, note that uh, Justin Trudeau would have saved himself a lot of trouble in this discussion if he'd asked the ethics commissioner... Uh, for advice on whether to take this trip or not, which he did not. Uh, and and that process, which does not require legislation or the kind of charade that the Prime Minister give himself permission, and if not, will he hand himself into the RCMP, which is what we heard in question period this week. Uh, the best way to kill a good opposition story is to go overboard with it um, and, and make it so that uh, any reasonable person from the outside would say, this is Kafkaesque. Uh, Justin Trudeau just admitted he did not give himself permission to eat the chocolate cake and he stole the chocolate cake and mm-hmm. he should go to the police and report himself as a thief. Most people will look at this and say this is a construct uh, that even if you push it and push it and repeat it, it does not really uh, stand up to scrutiny. To go back to well, the, the...
2: yeah, Well, we've seen on that point, Chantal, that the prime minister does have a problem when it comes to his vacation. Tofino reinforced that.
1: Yes, Uh, and we do know that uh, Justin Trudeau doesn't think that uh, there are many rules that apply to him. We've seen that too. And so, and all of those things, and it comes up time and again, the Toffino thing was not an ethics thing. (laughs) It was a judgment call, as was in part the the Aga Khan vacation. To go back to your larger issue of brown envelopes, I'll give you one example that I was uh, involved in, and it goes back to the 1995 referendum, or a few months before it. I found a brown envelope in my office. I worked for La Presse then. It was a memo from External Affairs. Uh, that related a conversation between one of the uh, European Union ambassadors and an official in the Canadian government where the uh, ambassador was revealing that Premier Jacques Peguizot had been asked, what would happen if Quebecers vote yes in October? And then they decide that they don't want to separate. And Jacques Peguizot, it said in the memo, it answered, well, ha, 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 they're not going to be able to back out because they're going to be in a lobster trap. Now, looking at the memo, I have to say your first temptation is to spare yourself a lot of journalism trouble by throwing it in, in your <laughs> trash can and moving on. It's July. But we, we worked from there, uh, talked to the ambassadors who were, attended that meeting, got it confirmed by ambassadors on the record that Jacques Peguizot had actually said that. And it became a front page story. Now, all this time, there was never any doubt, and it was also confirmed afterwards, that this brown envelope came from the unity organization of the federal government trying to score a hit, an early hit on Jacques Paiso in the lead up to the referendum, which we also found confirmed on the record and put on the front page, but to ignore... Uh, what is, I think, of public interest, I think it's it's important in the lead up to the referendum for Quebecers to know the terms of engagement here. If you vote yes, uh, there is not a, a turnoff in the highway to go back to where you came from. And that overrides whatever motives the people who are giving you the information may have, as long as you can actually verify it for yourself. We did not go to print with just a memo. Uh, right. which would which which would have been really sloppy journalism uh, I worked on it for four or five days we held off you always fear some competition will break the story before you when you hold off but then it's less costly than going with a story that will fall under your feet uh, and make you look like some agent of of one side in a debate versus another but they that is part of the process and and Rob is right uh, that When the information comes, your first test is, is this of public interest? Um, And then how do I go about making it uh, a solid story? Can I? Or maybe not? What do I know that this ambassador said that? Did he really hear that? Were there others? Uh, But the other uh, condition is that you accept no conditions. Right. But, of course, if Jacques Paiso says you're going to be in a lobster trap, it's bound to end up over the fold on the front page. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Okay, before we leave the before we leave this topic, let me just let me just throw one thing out that kind of returns to the the, the initial question that I was asking, trying to understand in this case why parties do this in the first place. I accept Chantel's point that it's decades long history um, and that they've all they've all done it. Um, but I, and she gave a, you know, a couple of examples of why, but I still, you know, I, I hearken back to, uh, (laughs) to date myself again, but you know, in the 1970s, when Peter McKay's dad, Elmer McKay, when he stood up in the house of commons, which wasn't uh, often, but when he did, you knew he was going to drop a bomb of some kind that he had a big story, uh, that he was going to break. He didn't break it through the newspapers. He broke it himself in the House of Commons, and it had a, a huge uh, impact. Um, but those days don't seem to be the case as this other method has been developed. And I've still, I, j- I just want a quick answer from each of you as to why the parties would favor this over their own um, people, their own leader, uh, getting the bounce from it, if in fact i I'll, legitimate I'll, story.
2: I'll start. I'll start uh, with that. Look. You know, Barack Obama had his own YouTube crew. So does Justin Trudeau. Um, there are myriad uh, platforms now. They can do this on Twitter. Uh, they can do it in so many places that what they want is is a guaranteed bounce. They want a guaranteed bounce, and if they're if if they're smart, they want to do it in a way uh, communications people that they get a two day or a three day bounce out of this, and, and to to stand up in the House of Commons is not a guarantee anymore that this is going to get prominence in a way that has measurable impact and there are many many ways to measure impact Um, uh, Chantal was saying nobody really uh, followed it that's one measure of impact but if you can get uh, uh, that pride of place at the top of the the uh, the Globe and Mail and the print edition still means something to a lot of people that's really good impact for a political party in this day and age where there are you know, multi-channels out there, uh, multi-platforms out there, uh, and and uh, a politician getting up in the House of Commons, even a serious politician getting up and making this accusation is no longer uh, a way for, for a story like that to have impact.
0: Chantal,
1: I think Rob used the, the right words to describe what the main goal is, is and that, that is to get a clean hit. To, to for a second get above the noise we we this week we've we have two provinces the two bigger provinces on the verge of an election a major Ontario budget a war in, in ukraine uh still some pandemic uh, stuff on the horizon uh, go down the list and Parliament Hill in question period and, and when you consider the magnitude of the issues that uh, are or take up the political pages uh, virtually or not in the media. Uh, the question period is kind of a, a, a tinier bubble than in, in the seventies, the era that you refer to. Uh, and if you're going to get attention above the noise, outside the bubble, you you would probably want uh, to proceed the way the conservatives did, rather than stand up in question period, which, by the way, is less um, is less watched. At a time when the government seems to be in the saddle for three years, when the political action is on the conservative leadership, there is no permanent leader there. Uh, So up to a point, covering question period sometimes feels more like a death watch than a news watch.
2: And I'm a mere stripling compared to you, of course, Peter. But uh, I would hazard a guess that uh, when Elmer McKay stood up uh, and if he did drop a bomb, all of the networks, all the news agencies all the newspapers covered it. Uh, They would have all put it out there, and that's just no longer the case anymore. Okay.
0: I'm going to leave it at that. We're going to move on. The trucker's convoy. I thought that was over. I thought that was all in the past. It bounced back this week, too, with a new inquiry. We'll talk about that when we come back. (laughs) Listening to good talk right here on Sirius XM Channel One Six Seven Canada Talks or on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to you wherever you're listening from. Chantelle Bear is in Montreal, and Rob Russo is in Ottawa, sitting in for Bruce Anderson this week. Um, The truckers' convoy made a comeback this week in terms of uh, as a news story. There's all kinds of investigations have been going on ever since. The convoy ended, which is a couple of months ago now. Um, But this week, a new investigation was added to the list, uh, appointed by the Prime Minister to look into the use of the Emergencies Act. Because if you recall back in the day when the Emergencies Act dropped, there were these hints that something terrible was going on behind the scenes. We can't tell you what it is, said the government. But it's not good, it's bad, and that's one of the reasons why we got to use this Emergencies Act, which they used for whatever it was, 8, 9, 10 days. And then the whole thing kind of wrapped up. But we still don't know what that was, and I don't know whether this inquiry is going to find out what it was, what the government used to persuade themselves that they should bring in the Emergencies Act, what was it and how did they find out what it was? I mean, there are all kinds of speculations surrounding that question. Um, and in the end, was it the right thing to do in response? So another investigation, another inquiry gets added to the ones that are already going on. So Rob, you start us off on this topic. What do we make of this?
2: Well, um, Look, there, there, there are, uh, again, there are manifold processes going on to try and determine why the government brought in the act. Uh, I, I just a little, a little context to start us off. First of all, this is the first time uh, a government has used this act. This is the first time that any government has used extraordinary powers since the War Measures Act was brought in in 1970. Uh, it's, it's different, substantially different than the War Measures Act because civil liberties cannot be suspended. All kinds of other provisions like this automatic inquiry, like uh, uh, renewals, uh, uh, regular uh, renewals on short intervals for this act. But it was still an extraordinary thing for any government to do. Uh, uh, you know, I, can't, I can't count. Let's see, uh, Mulroney, Campbell, Chrétien, Harper, uh, and then Trudeau. So five Martin. governments... Martin, I'm terribly sorry. Yeah. Six governments could you? have come along. Uh, and I was here, too. It's, it's sad. Uh, six governments have come along and and never used this act until the Trudeau government decided to use it. So we have to tell people this is extraordinary. Um, on the surface, yes. Uh, I mean, it looks like it was an extraordinary time. I'm in Ottawa. Uh, basically, the government had lost sovereignty over the parliamentary precinct. An extraordinary thing. Uh, the, the most important, uh, trading corridor, North America was shut down. Now, by the time they brought this in, it, you know, it was over, but, uh, but it was shut down for a period of time. And our biggest trading partner was losing confidence in our ability to keep the economy going. Uh, so ac- across the country, there was this threat of commercial trade being shut down and people being thrown out of work. As a result, there were people who were laid off on both sides of the border because of that. So that's the context. Extraordinary law, extraordinary time, but we need to know more. You don't bring in a law like this that comes in every 50 years, as it turns out, without the public being told why. The, the government has hinted at the reasons. They've hinted at intelligence. They've hinted at, at knowledge that, that we don't have. We're not going to get answers, it seems, from the uh, parliamentary committee that's looking into this. The two ministers involved, Justice Minister Lametti and Public Safety Minister Mendicino, were in front of this committee. We just got very broad, vague answers, pointing to again dark recesses of activity, but no real answers. There's a court challenge. Uh, I think that the government uh, is going to be able to bat that away. Most of the lawyers that you consult on these issues say that the government will be able to bat this away. But the inquiry headed by Mr. Justice Rulo, former Mr. Justice Rulo, he's our best hope for getting answers. But there are problems with some of the provisions of his mandate that might prevent us from getting answers. So I just wanted to set that context before we got there. Uh, And what are those provisions? Well, He can't have any impact, his investigation or his findings can't have any impact on current criminal proceedings. And we know that a lot of the leaders involved in this are not in front of the courts. He cannot in any way uh, um, endanger intelligence or other other, uh, information from foreign sources or other things that would impact on the security of of Canada and its ability to, to get this information in. So he's going to have to do quite a balancing act in order to answer questions that people clearly want answered uh, and without, without um, transgressing over some of the guardrails around this committee.
1: Okay, uh, before we um, retire Justice Rullo ahead of his time. As far as I can tell, he is still You're right. in office. You're right. <laughs> so, so he's not doing this in retirement, as opposed to some of our former Supreme Court justices. We get so used to seeing them in retirement heading commissions that the assumption is that that's the retirement project of many distinguished uh, uh, justices. Yeah. I think this inquiry is the most important, in part, because Justice Paul Rouleau has his reputation uh, in the balance uh, uh, of his conclusions, he, regardless of the terms of reference uh, that the government has written, the act is clear. His job is to answer the question: Was it? Was there no other way to deal with this than to use this extraordinary law? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, he will not be able to just put in a redacted report. To say, I'm not telling you why, but you're going to have to take my word for it, I would be very surprised. Will that involve context, as in calling in people who were involved in organizing the blockades uh, to uh, find out more about their organization and their motivations? Of course, it's it's relevant, but at the end of the day, they... they there are many people who this week would be saying, well, you know, this ended, so we should be happy. And that's kind of the government's response. We did this and it worked. There are some arguments on the other side that shows that maybe uh, something else could have worked. Uh, the fact that the Windsor-Detroit uh, link was restored without... The use of the act does not help the government's cause. The fact that while, yes, I understand that if you live in Ottawa, the government lost sovereignty over the parliamentary precinct, but that's mitigated by the other fact, inconvenient, that parliament actually sat throughout, uh, that MPs and ministers and others were free to go about their business. Uh, They were not uh, sitting uh, in trenches, trying to talk on their cell phones to have parliamentary debates. Life did go on in Parliament. That's going to have to be uh, countered by some rationale. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because uh, the last thing you want is to normalize the use of uh, the Emergency Measures Act to do away with inconvenience, As, as grave as inconvenience may be. You want the penalty for using the act just to, to, you know, this is this is a bother. So why not use this act? And for the many who are saying, well, you know, there were white supremacists in there, there were unsavory characters with views that we don't agree on. Others who are saying they want to um, unseat the government uh, and install some new government, uh, despite the fact that we've just had an election. The reason why you don't want it normalized is that it has happened this time to people you don't like, but one day it could be happening to people you actually like, indigenous protesters, uh, environmentalists, uh, people who were, by and large, on the other side uh, of the blockades ideologically. And, And so I believe this commission is really important. I don't think that Canadians will exact a very high political price for the uh, Trudeau government if it is found that uh, he, th- there were other options. But I also don't think that the opposition parties will get a lot of mileage out of uh, a conclusion like that. But I think the conclusion does matter uh, because that is not the kind of government measure you want normalized.
2: All right. Me, I, uh, I would agree. And I, and I would also say that this, this protest began – Uh, Because there are a lot of people who thought that the government was overreaching. Um, uh, And so if it was seen to be overreaching before this happened and it overreached in order to quell the protest, that's a really important thing for people to know. Um, People need to know that a responsible government behaves responsible, even in the most difficult times. Uh, And and uh, I I think that that it's it's really important at a time when conspiracy theory is again very very popular that that kind of uh, a notion that that false beliefs that are often reinforced in echo chambers on social media platforms that those things aren't allowed to thrive in this instance in particular which is why uh, transparency sunlight all of those all of those things are really uh, an important factor and an important part of this process and i hope that mr justice rulo can get at
0: that All right, well, here's uh, where I see part of the difficulty uh, that Rulo will face uh, on this. If one of the uh, eventual end products is understanding what that awful thing was that the government moved to the Emergencies Act to quell it, if the the assumption is that that's going to be uncovered in this uh, inquiry, I would be very, very surprised. And I'll tell you why. Um, a, a, as pathetic as some of the policing was during the uh, the first three weeks of that um, protest, and as questionable as the actions of not just the Ottawa police but the OPP, even the RCMP uh, were during that period, uh, I've got to assume that it was like any normal investigatory matter that they had they had people on the inside, the police forces, they had people moles, whatever you want to call them, inside the protest movement, inside the organizers, they knew what was happening. And that some of this information, rightly or wrongly, factually or not factually, got then passed on somehow to government. Now, if that's true, and I find it awfully hard not to believe that there's some element of that isn't true. If that's true, they're not going to unveil their sources in a public inquiry that's just not going to happen so we're never going to hear the answers to those questions about what was the big fear
1: well that's That depends on how Justice Rouleau uses this leeway, but I have a really hard time uh, reconciling your notion of awful things. I'm not saying it's yours, but the government's notion of awful things, capital A, capital T, with a situation that was resolved by having an order to get tow trucks uh, and and tow people away over the the course of less than a week. Sorry, that's just me uh, and using common sense here. So uh,
0: they were the throwing, more the they government were throwing to- people in jail, too, at the same time, right? It yes, was how many tow trucks being pulled away.
1: But how many? Yes. And they couldn't throw them in jail before that order. Right. Uh, I, 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 if I were sitting in, in the PMO and the Privy Council, I would be careful about the awful thing thing. Because the more you talk about it... The, more, the harder it is to reconcile with the reality of what we saw once the act was uh, was was proclaimed, uh, which was uh, a strong um, contracts to have tow trucks do their work and the police actually exercising the powers that they have. If, if wow. I stand in the middle of St. Catherine Street today and I lie down on the ground and stop traffic in a pothole, maybe I won't get noticed, it's Montreal, but still I expect the police... To- to have the power to remove me, if only for my own safety, but also maybe to fix the butthole one lives in hopes.
2: On the, uh, on the notion of, of uh, tow trucks, Chantal is, is, is makes an interesting point. During during the uh, committee hearing, or the Joint Parliamentary Committee hearing, um, Claude Capignon. Senator, a conservative senator asked uh, Mendicino, uh, you, you say that you needed to bring in this act partially because you had trouble getting tow trucks. Well, here's the auto trader. Uh, and here are a whole bunch of tow trucks that you could have bought. You know, you could have bought these tow trucks. Uh, so there has to be more than tow trucks. Now, Peter, you make the point, And I think it's a, I think it's a good one that the government had to have people inside well, we know that those who organized the protest certainly had their own informants inside the police department. Uh, and and the, the, the acting chief of police in Ottawa has essentially admitted that that information was being leaked to the protesters by sympathetic police. We've seen videos of sympathetic Ontario police officers as well. These are issues that are worth looking at by any inquiry uh, too. And I'm also struck by uh, jody thomas who's the prime minister's national security advisor telling that committee uh, and this is a quote the people who organized that protest and there were several factions there there's no doubt came to overthrow the government well uh okay we've seen the, the ludicrous manifesto that uh, was going to have some sort of uh junta sit down with the governor general and and decide how to uh split up power with the rule of the ruthless few, essentially uh but when uh, when somebody that's senior in the prime minister's office uh, leaves no shadow of a doubt that they were um, there to overthrow the government, um, I think answers do need to be given. And if they don't, they don't necessarily need to identify their informants, but they can say, uh, you know, person X uh, has these recordings and we are going to play or we're we going to give you uh, some evidence of these recordings. They have to provide some sort of evidence to back up a uh, black and white statement that there's no doubt that these people came to overthrow the government. Certainly, uh, there were incendiary comments by some of the organizers, Pat King and others in particular, who talked about solving issues with bullets. Uh, That's incendiary language, but it could just be big talk. However, we do know that big talk inspires people to do uh, quite dangerous and lunatic things. It was just a couple of years ago that somebody drove up Uh, to the governor general's gate, got through, armed, uh, and was stopped by the RCMP. So there is real danger there. But was there the danger uh, uh, of of somebody actually seriously trying to overthrow the government? We have a senior official in the prime minister's office saying there was. We need evidence of that.
1: And again, to go back to the fundamental question, this is an act that is to be invoked when all other recourses, are insufficient for the task. We live in a peaceful country, uh, but when you look around the world, usually a serious conspiracy to unseat an elected government involves the armed forces, the military, the police, some politicians uh, who are conspiring with uh, the would be uh, insurgents. I don't really think that Pierre Poiliev's donuts qualify as to make him part of a conspiracy to unseat the Trudeau government. So a lot of the elements that you would normally associate with a serious attempt at overthrowing a democratically elected government are at this point missing in action. Uh, So they're either, they have, the government has uncovered a conspiracy that was so well hidden in plain sight that none of us saw any evidence of it. Or else, uh, they eventually caved into to pressure uh, to do something about this because the Ottawa police really messed up from the start, and at, at that point, no one could fix it without the use of the Act.
0: Could this end up being our um, our January sixth moment, if you will? Uh, and I'm not comparing the two incidents, but in terms of the potential value and um, highlighting of an incident by an inquiry I mean the January 6th uh, investigation in the in the United States which has taken a considerable length of time um, is now going to go full public with hearings in June and with the hopes of making it a you know some kind of a primetime event in the United States uh, if this inquiry is public I'm assuming the media is going to want to cover it uh, in some detail, uh, does it have the potential to be a <laughs> hate the phrase "game changer"? But you know what I mean in terms of the kind of landscape of uh, issues that the uh, the public is facing.
1: Uh, but the January sixth uh, story uh, is is what makes it compelling. Is that the the, the outgoing president uh, or his associates were involved in it to to compare it, you would have had to have Aaron O'Toole, unlikely rebel, uh, standing up on a truck saying, uh, I actually won the election uh, and these people are here to make sure that the, the rigged election, no one has argued that we even had a rigged election amongst anyone that is in the political process. We, we are not there in any way, shape, or form. Yes, it will be covered, but I... I, I don't believe that, that this is uh the, the the same kind of uh of of issue. Uh th- that in this case, if there's an abuse of power, it's not the outgoing uh prime minister that is guilty, it's the current prime minister for using his power to curb a demonstration, not some other politician using this demonstration to undo an election result. So it's it's kind of the reverse. <laughs>
2: Um, I, I, the, the, uh, the difference is also cultural, Peter. I think that uh, th- our, our investigation is being, being led by a, a, a court judge who uh, is going to be operating largely by himself with uh, with investigators. He's going to probably need to get into cabinet confidences. Uh, that's not something that will be aired in public. Um, and he's going to have to get into um, international intelligence. Intelligence was shared um, by by U.S. authorities with Canadian authorities that allowed money to be tracked, that allowed uh, everything from travel to be tracked as well. It'll be difficult for a lot of that to be to be made public, um, so it doesn't lead to the same kind of um, kind of attention grabbing uh, nature of an event like like an open hearing. Um, but again, I go back to Jody Thomas. She has made a very serious charge. If it turns out that there was any kind of serious attempt to to overthrow the government. I think that that's a potentially very um, important moment in our history and recognizing where we are in terms of uh, extremism in this country. The the head of CSIS was up before the committee as well, and he said something that that really caught my attention, which was um, political extremism, uh, a sort of authoritarian extremism, now takes up more of their time and worry, about half, than uh, what he co- referred to as religious extremism, which was a threat in Canada and around the world after 9-11. So the, the, the principal security threat to Canada, domestic and international now, is political extremism. So we things have changed in some ways. I, I'm leery though, I am leery of, of making any kind of sweeping judgment until we see any kind of evidence because I'm old enough to remember the phrase apprehended insurrection which is what Pierre Trudeau referred to uh, uh, during the October crisis when he was sure that there was an organized effort to overthrow the government during the uh, FLQ crisis in 1970. Well, there was nothing of the sort. Almost 500 people uh, were locked up for no reason. Uh, and, and ironically, many of them ended up being in the Parti Quebecois cabinets that followed in, in, in the later 1970s. So uh, when governments make these kinds of sweeping uh, statements, our, our obligations to be skeptical and to, to demand evidence of it.
0: All right, going to leave it at that. I want to get to our uh, our final topic, and we got a few minutes for it. It's about climate change. Right after this. Welcome back. The uh, final segment of Good Talk for this week, Chantel's in uh, Montreal, Rob Russo filling in for Bruce Anderson. Rob is in Ottawa. All right. If you are uh, an advocate of doing something about climate change and you were hopeful and excited about some of the things you had been hearing over the last months and even years, you probably didn't have a very good week because a number of things happened. First of all, there was a a sense that the government's plans on climate change are not moving anywhere near as fast as it claims or hopes they would be. And in the leadership race for the main opposition party, the Conservatives, two of the prime candidates, uh, gave a sense that they weren't quite in line with what the government was doing, and they were backing off um, some promises that their own party had made in the last election campaign. So what does all this mean about a future of concern about climate change? Um, Chantel, start.
1: Oh, it, it was not a, a week where developments uh, suggested that we are having stars aligned towards progress in a variety of venues. Uh, I'll start with, and I'll set aside the Environment Commissioner's reports because they what they point to are, you're right, uh, some failings in the federal plan, and they do suggest there is a lot of work uh, to be done to achieve the targets the government has set. Uh, but, but his advice is not just criticism. It is also something that the government can do something about between now and 2030. And so it is constructive advice uh, rather than dispiriting findings. Uh, the, the, the glass half full is, is more interesting in this case, but on the rest of it, let's start with the conservative leadership. I think we can now say that uh, Aaron O'Toole's timid attempt to bring the party under the tent of uh, carbon pricing is now dead and buried. Erin uh, O'Toole's acknowledgement that the carbon pricing and a carbon tax was a useful, possibly essential tool in achieving Canada's objectives, is now being rejected by the leading contenders for the Conservative Party leadership. No one will be surprised that uh, Pierre Poilievre does not, in theory, uh, necessarily plan to come up with a, a policy on climate change until before the next election, so maybe not over the course of this campaign. As for uh, Jean Charret, whose record until this campaign included uh, the fact that he was an early on convert to the need to address environmental issues and climate change, He, he has walked back some of this, or at least decided to forget lot of realities on the way to trying to woo enough conservative members uh, to elect him as leader. And one of those this week, Josh Charest said he would, uh, well, he would roll back most of the climate change policies of the current federal government when it comes to environmental assessment, et cetera. He would also get rid of the carbon tax. Um, and he pointed out rightly that when he was premier, he set in place a, a cap-and-trade system Uh, And so address the issue of carbon pricing without a carbon tax. That is totally true, which is why the federal carbon tax does not apply in Quebec. But when Premier, when former Premier Shaya says, I would do away with this carbon tax on consumers, uh, what he's not addressing is what does he do about the provinces where it applies, Ontario and the prairies? where governments are not doing the equivalent uh, would he, and how, by leaving this to the provinces, would he ever get to any uh, uh, target on, on reducing emissions, which by the way, he would roll back those targets to Stephen Harper's targets, we're going back a decade. Then you look at the Ontario budget that paves the way for the, an election in the Canada's largest province. It's virtually silent on uh, the environment you could call it a, 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 the, the pro-car budget. It's about building highways and helping you to buy electric cars, not for the environment, but because the auto industry in Ontario, central to the province's economy, is switching to e-vehicles. And then you look at Quebec, came out uh, with also well, going in an election statement uh, of intent from the government yesterday, which commits Quebec to achieving 51% of the target that it needs to achieve in 2030. And if you look at all this, and w- my conclusion is that if the federal conservatives, the incumbents in Ontario and Quebec are proceeding in those directions, they are willing to bet their future on the fact that voters are not willing to put their money where their mouth is on climate change, and I suspect they may be right.
0: Yeah. Um, all right, Rob, you uh, have a couple of minutes for the closing argument on this.
2: Well, not no argument at all. I mean, look, there, there are a couple of realities, broad realities apart from the details. Um, climate plans have tended to be lethal to conservative leaders, federal conservative leaders. Andrew Sher didn't have one, paid a price. Aaron O'Toole had one, uh, paid a price by flip-flopping on a carbon tax that he wasn't for it. And then put one in. So, uh, it's, it's it's one of the, what they used to have sword issues and shield issues. This is a shield issue for conservatives. They just depend on it. They can't really make yards on it. The other thing is, in general, pollsters uh, will, will tell you that Canadians want to lower greenhouse gases. They want to do it as fairly as possible. They want to do it at the lowest cost possible. But the truth is Canadians are among the least virtuous virgins when it comes to the environment and climate change policy. Uh, we say these things but we drive uh, SUVs in grand numbers. We have to heat our homes because we're cold most of the year. We have to drive great distances. We're a great big, broad country. Uh, and uh, we, we do this the kinds of things that negate the, the uh, our, our, our kind of pristine wishes for a pristine environment. Uh, so, uh, you know, environment environment is, is an issue that also tends to be top of mind when things are going very well. When we can afford maybe, to to take a hit on cleaning up the environment. Well, right now, things are kind of very uncertain. And I suspect that conservative leaders in Ontario, in Quebec, and those vying for the leadership federally know that. They know that people have other priorities, uh, and those priorities may supersede the environment, and they're taking advantage of all of those factors, Our, our, our less than virtuous virginity when it comes to the environment, and our other priorities economically.
0: Let me, uh, let me close with this one little anecdote about a former Conservative leader, Stephen Harper, of all people. His first major speech that he gave after becoming Prime Minister in 2006 uh, was in Berlin. It was at a big international conference. And he'd already done a lot of things in the first opening weeks and months of his uh, term, including being in Afghanistan. And he had a lot of uh, action around things. And somehow this speech floated up, I think, probably from inside the bureaucracy and he found himself saying in Berlin that the greatest threat the world faces right now is climate change. And he, <laughs> he must have paused after those words came out of his mouth because he never said them again. Um, and I can remember asking him, "Gosh, you, you've changed since that speech." And he, it, the look he had on his face was, "You don't know the half." <laughs> You don't know how the half of how that came out. Uh, nevertheless, it's there. It's there in the history books, and uh, it, it's one to remember. Listen, Rob, it's been great to have you with us uh, uh, today, and I'm sure there will be other times because Bruce, uh, Bruce is overseas enjoying um, uh, enjoying a bit of a break. Uh, but it's been great to have you, and Chantel is always. Thanks, Peter. Um, so we... Uh, We'll be back next week, obviously for Friday with good talk. But the bridge is back on Monday with a collection of stories throughout the week. Should be a good one. Um, I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again on Monday.